subscribe, stay up to date. Episodes drop every other Monday. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed, or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Box Office Breakdown. We'll be looking at the domestic box office gross for the month of July 1993. It can include movies released in the month, or carried over from previous months. Coming in at number 10, we have Hocus Pocus, with $23.5 million. Not the biggest box office success, but certainly became a cult classic, and now, especially with the sequel, has reached a whole new audience. At number 9, we have Son-in-Law, with $27.8 million. This was around the time that Pauly Shore reigned supreme. He was on the small screen on MTV, he was on the big screen in Son-in-Law, Class Act, and Sino Man. You just couldn't get away from him. Number 8. Free Willy with $31 million. A popular family film, spawned a couple of sequels, but probably best well known for the Michael Jackson hit, Will You Be There? At number 7, we have Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was re-released by Walt Disney Pictures in 1993 to get some of that inflation cash, and it paid off with $33 million at the box office. Next at number 6 was Dennis the Menace. The best part of the film was the crotchety Mr. Wilson, played by Walter Matthau. At number 5, we have Rookie of the Year, with $37.5 million. Underrated baseball film. This came out at a time when there was all of these family-friendly sports movies, you had The Sandlot, Angels in the Outfield, The Big Green, Little Giants, Air Bud, The Mighty Ducks. There was definitely a brief moment for these types of films. At number four, Sleepless in Seattle. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, how can you go wrong? But I have to say, this movie creeps me out a little, because Meg Ryan's character becomes obsessed with a voice on the phone she hires a private investigator to take pictures of him so she knows what he looks like, then flies all the way out to Seattle to try and meet him. Then she goes to New York City with the hopes that she'll meet him at the top of the Empire State Building. All the while, she's there in a restaurant with her fiancé. If this scenario was reversed and it was a man, he would be arrested for stalking. Am I right? I'm alright. But yeah, I guess it's kind of a sweet movie, maybe? At least Rosie O'Donnell was good in it. But it did earn $64 million in the month of July, and $126 million overall. So some sicko out there must like it. Speaking of sickos, at number three, we have In the Line of Fire. Put John Malkovich on the map. He was amazing. 
He played a very convincing man wanting to kill the president that I think he was probably visited by the FBI at some point. I also like the link to the JFK assassination because that is a conspiracy theory that I don't necessarily believe in, but I love reading about. But the phone calls between Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich, some of the best acting performances. At number two, not surprisingly, we have Jurassic Park, which grossed $98 million in the July box office and would go on to rake in $357 million. After Jaws, I think this is Spielberg's second perfect movie. The acting's amazing. It's my favorite John Williams score. It's one of the last movies that used practical NCGI effects in perfect cohesion and balance, and it's your prototypical summer blockbuster. And coming in at number one, The Firm, released on July 2nd and earned $120 million. Based on the John Grisham novel, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, one for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Holly Hunter, and Best Music Original Score for David Grusin. What's interesting about the top ten is the variety of films. You've got dramas, action-adventure, thrillers, romantic comedy, straightforward comedies, and The Family Affair isn't animated. I mean, Rookie of the Year, Dennis Semenis, Free Willy, Hocus Pocus, all live action. Maybe this is why a lot of people stop going to the movies. There's just not enough being offered to the audience. But if you look at the success of a biopic like Oppenheimer, or one based off a toy geared towards women, you see that there's an audience there for it. And I just don't understand the studio heads not wanting to offer a wide variety of movies to a wide variety of audiences. They're out there. You just have to give them a reason to go to the theater. Now this week's movie, Poetic Justice, was number 12 at the box office, earning $17 million in the month of July. So let's see what I think of it. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is Skip It. 2 stars Watch at Your Own Risk. 3 stars Standard Fair. 4 stars Worth Checking Out. And 5 stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing Poetic Justice from 1993. It was written and directed by John Singleton, who helmed Higher Learning, Shaft, Four Brothers, and Abduction. He was nominated for two Academy Awards for his feature directorial debut, Boys in the Hood, as Best Director and Best Writing, screenplay written directly for the screen. It stars Janet Jackson as Justice. She was born in Gary, Indiana, but by the age of three, the family moved to Encino, California, when the Jackson Five were signed to Motown Records. She began performing with her brother Randy on the Las Vegas Strip at the age of seven. Three years later, she would co-star with her brothers on the Jacksons' variety show. A year later, she would star in Good Times and was cast in a recurring role on Different Strokes. When she was 16, she signed to A&M Records and released her self-titled debut in 1982. She would go on to sell over 100 million records worldwide. She also appeared on the big screen in The Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, Why Did I Get Married and its sequel, and For Colored Girls. Tupac Shakur portrays Lucky. He was born in East Harlem, New York, but by 1984, the family relocated to Maryland, where he would attend Baltimore School for the Arts, and was classmates with Jada Pinkett. 
1988, he moved to Marin County, California, where he started recording as MC New York in the rap group Strictly Dope. He debuted the stage name Tupac, the number 2 and PAC, as part of Digital Underground, where he was a backup dancer and rapper. They had a hit single, Same Song, which was featured on the Nothing But Trouble soundtrack. In 1991, he released his debut album, Tupacalypse Now, which was certified gold. He would sell 75 million records worldwide. His big screen debut was in Juice. He would go on to star in Above the Rim, Bullet, Gridlock, and Gang Related. This is something to look out for. There are six recording artists cast in the film. Tupac Shakur, Janet Jackson, Mickey Howard, Keith Washington, Tone Loke, and Q-Tip. So let's jump into it. Justice and her boyfriend Markel are at the drive-in watching an Alan Smithy film, very funny reference, when he's gunned down in the driver's seat by guys he had a beef with. Not so funny. Justice copes with the loss through her poetry and walks around sporting black, looking tore up from the floor up. She works as a hairdresser at Salon de Butte, owned by a mother-like figure, Jessie. They're preparing for a hair show in Oakland. They're visited by Lucky, the postal worker, who attempts to flirt with Justice to no avail. After his shift, he goes to visit his daughter, Keisha, whose mother is a crack addict and sleeping with her dealer. Lucky removes Keisha from the house and wants to take care of her full time. He hopes that his music career pans out so he can afford to. Meanwhile, Justice's best friend, Aisha, is going on a run up to Oakland with her boyfriend, Chicago, and his friend, and invites her to come along. Justice initially rejects the offer, but when she's ready to travel to the hair show, her car doesn't start. So she asks to tag along, not realizing the friend is lucky. Here's a quote without context. Garth Brooks. He's slamming, right? Poetic Justice was an enjoyable film, despite the fact that everyone seemed to be at each other's throats for most of the movie. It takes some time to get going, but it kept my interest in the first 20-30 minutes by establishing the neighborhood and the relationships between the characters. It still takes until around the 40-minute mark for the road trip to start, but by that time I was pretty much invested. The acting was really strong, very natural performances. I believed everything they said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Regina King as Aisha had the largest arc, as she seemed like the stereotypical best friend character, but as the film progresses, there's a lot of depth that gets revealed. The cast was rounded out by Jennifer Lewis, who I'm very fond of as an actor. Joe Torrey, Tyra Farrell, and Clifton Collins Jr. Billy Zane and Laurie Petty have a brief appearance in the opening film. It was interesting seeing the juxtaposition of the gritty Los Angeles city with some of the scenic areas on the road trip. There was a moment between Justice and Lucky where they're sitting on the ground which overlooks a very pretty lake. I'd really like to know where that was shot. Alphonse! Alphonse! Look that up for me. Overall, it's a good film. John Singleton said he wrote it for young African-American women, so I'm not exactly the intended audience, but there's enough of the human element that anyone can relate to the characters and their struggles. Now for a little trivial trivia. The poetry written by Justice was actually created by Maya Angelou, who has a cameo appearance as Aunt June. Poetic Justice was produced by John Singleton and Steve Nicolaitis, known for The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, Shaft, and School of Rock. It was filmed in and around Los Angeles and parts of Oakland, California. The cinematography was captured by Peter Lyons Colester, whose filmography includes Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Problem Child, Higher Learning, The Replacement Killers, and Mr. Deeds. 
It was edited by Bruce Cannon, who worked on Higher Learning, Too Fast, Too Furious, Four Brothers, Abduction, and Addiction. The score was composed by Stanley Clark, who wrote the music for Passenger 57, Eddie, Baps, The Best Man, and Romeo Must Die. The soundtrack featured songs by A Tribe Called Quest, Usher, Coolio, Stevie Wonder, Naughty by Nature, The Dog Pound, and The Isley Brothers. The runtime is 1 hour 49 minutes. It had a budget of $14 million and grossed $27.5 million at the box office. It was nominated for one Oscar at the 1994 Academy Awards for Best Music, Original Song for Again, performed by Janet Jackson. On the Ski Index, I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. If you've seen Poetic Justice and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. We can debate whether or not social distancing and working from home was beneficial to our society. Was it better for personal morale not to have to commute into work? Were people more productive without the distractions from the office? Or did you find yourself doing the laundry and cleaning the house more often since you would because you didn't realize how much of a pig you were until you had to work in your own filth? But I think the one thing we all can agree upon is that it made for some very memorable moments caught on Zoom. Whether it was children interrupting your breaking news report, or pets appearing on screen as you're trying to do the weather, it was always highly amusing watching the workers scramble to regain their composure as chaos ensues around them. So I've selected a couple of clips, a couple of compilations, including my favorite where the lawyer had a cat filter on while the proceedings were taking place. And if that wasn't funny enough, he had to clarify for the judge, I'm not a cat. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. These videos are all available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Ballers. Created by Stephen Levison, who is a producer on the television series Entourage and Boardwalk Empire, and movies Contraband, Prisoners, Lone Survivor, Patriot's Day, and Shooter. The pilot episode was directed by Peter Berg, who helmed The Rundown, Friday Night Lights, The Kingdom, and Hancock. It tells the story of Spencer Strassmore, a retired Miami Dolphins player with a dependence on pills, who transitioned to financial advisor for NFL athletes. It stars Dwayne Johnson, former WWE superstar and actor of The Scorpion King, Hercules, San Andreas, Central Intelligence, Moana, Red Notice, and Rob Corddry, former Daily Show correspondent, known for Blades of Glory, Hot Tub Time Machine, Warm Bodies, and 80 for Brady. They previously worked together on the movie Pain and Gain, alongside executive producer Mark Wahlberg. It also features John David Washington, son of Denzel, Donovan W. Carter, Troy Garrity, Richard Schiff, and Dulé Hill. Commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, and many of the league owners attempted to prevent their players from appearing on the show, as if you needed another reason to despise everyone in the front office. But the show was able to use NFL logos and likenesses without consent from the league, as long as they didn't tarnish its image or reputation. Um, I think some of the players already did that. 
just in domestic violence cases alone. Still doesn't compare to members of Congress. I didn't get into this show when it first aired, but I've been binge-watching recently and really enjoying it. The acting is really strong, the locations are beautiful, especially when they're filming in Miami, and it's a lot of fun. I haven't gotten to the later seasons yet, so hopefully it holds up, but as of right now, I highly recommend. The series was nominated for five Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Cinematography for a Single Camera Series, Half Hour, Outstanding Stunt Coordination, and Outstanding Sound Editing for a Comedy or Drama Series, Half Hour, and Animation. Ballers was on for five seasons, 47 episodes, from 2015 to 2019. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed, or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. He was nominated for two Academy Awards for his feature feature fictational debut. Poetic Justice was an enjoyable film, despite the fact that everyone seemed to be at each other's throats. Do that again. Despite the fact that everyone seemed to be at each other's throats. Why is that such a hitch for me? Despite the fact that everyone seems to be at each other's throats. Oh, that was so good until the shush shush.